Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so what we're going to do tonight is, um, for those of you that are new to this, um, I teach a class, a college class. Come on in, guys. I teach a college class at Colorado Christian University um, here in Sterling, and the students have to take an Old Testament survey class, and they have to take a New Testament survey class. And so I thought, you know, I teach this class every year, both classes, and I've never taught it at the church. It'd be cool to teach what I teach to the students to the church. And so last time we did Old Testament, and now we're going to do New Testament. And I just finished up teaching this with some students, and we do a little bit differently in class. Um, and so I've kind of modified it for our church. But what we're going to do is we're going to have to get some introductory issues out of the way first. So here's the big question um, that I want to ask you before we even start looking at any of the books of the Bible in the New Testament. How many original autographs of the New Testament documents do we have? Anybody want to guess? Original. Like Paul's original letter to Corinth. Big fat goose egg. We have zero original documents. But we have a lot of copies that go way back. Okay, let's just talk a little bit about time frame for a moment. Um, Jesus was born, probably there's some debate, um, anywhere between B.C. 4 to B.C. 6 to 0 A.D., Let's just say that Jesus was born in A.D. 0. He died in A.D. 33. Okay, does anybody know around when the first of the New Testament books were, were written? In the 60s, yeah. Like, like the earliest ones showed up probably in the late 50s to the early, the early 60s. It sounds weird, doesn't it? Like we're talking about when the Beatles came on the scene. You know, no, this is like the fifth, not the 1950s, but the 50s. Anybody know the last book of the New Testament is Revelation? It was written in the mid-90s, so 95 to 96 AD. So roughly, we're talking from about the 50s to the, about 50 years of documents that we are talking about in relationship to New Testament documents. Um, and so we don't have any of those original documents that were written, but we have a lot of copies from like the 100s, okay? And so when you go back and look at copies of the New Testament, um, we have to understand that the original manuscripts that, that Paul and Luke and, and Matthew wrote, those are inspired texts um, those are the originals. We, we don't have any. Now, um, anybody want to guess how many copies, original copies, are there of the Odyssey by Homer? Anybody want to guess how many original? We have zero. Okay. How many copies are there around ancient documents of Homer's Odyssey do you think there are? There's about five to six hundred. Anybody want to know how many copies of the New Testament we have? Probably fourteen to fifteen thousand. So the one of the greatest works of literature, Homer's Odyssey, there is more evidence for the New Testament's authority and accuracy 
because of so many different manuscripts. Now, one of the assignments I do in my class, and this is very difficult for first-year students, is I break them up in groups and I say, okay, you guys are Christians in the desert in AD 150, and all these documents are, are scattered around. You've got the book of Matthew, you've got the book of Mark. How do you determine which books go in the Bible? Because this didn't just drop from heaven in a leather-bound ESV, Matthew to Revelation Bible. How did the process go of what we call canonization? I'm not going to go into the process of canonization for our purposes, but I will say this, is that the early church recognized the authority of the Scriptures already. They recognized the inspiration of the Scriptures already. They just came together from a wide range of geography and a wide range of, of socioeconomic areas came together for these councils and basically codified or put together what the church in general viewed as, as authoritative. So you have like the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon. Um, you had some earlier guys like Marcion. Marcion was one of the first ones to put together a canon of the, Old, of the New Testament. And basically he went through and, and any of the miracles or any of the quotes related to the Old Testament he threw out and said, that's not, we're not going to deal with that. And so basically he had his own list of what books in the Bible he was going to have. It wasn't up until about Athanasius in around the late 300s, he proposed basically the order that we have today. And then the Council of Nicaea really kind of codified the books in the order that we have, Matthew through the Revelation in those, in those early councils. Okay. Um, now, one of the things that you have to think about is there are some Gnostic Gospels that are out there. Anybody remember the Da Vinci Code? Um, there's these Gnostic Gospels like the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas. Um, these are really weird Gospels that have Jesus doing weird things like getting married to Mary Magdalene and having children that are you know, heirs to the French throne and the Knights Templar and all this kind of stuff. Um, those were written in the 200s to 300s. Now, one of the things that you have to really understand, I don't have this in your notes, but there's, there's, there's a couple of tests for understanding the authority of manuscripts. And one of those big tests that we have to ask is, whoever wrote the document, were they an eyewitness to Jesus? Okay, think about Matthew. Was Matthew an eyewitness? Okay, Mark. Was Mark an eyewitness? Sort of. He got most of his information from Peter. Was Luke an eyewitness? No, but we'll find out with Luke. He went and compiled, like a good investigative reporter, all of the documentation to come up with what was historically accurate. Was John an eyewitness? Yes. Um, was Peter an eyewitness? Yes. Was James an eyewitness? Yes, he was Jesus' brother. Who else wrote? Paul. Was Paul an eyewitness? Yes. Post-resurrection, when Jesus showed up to him at the road to Damascus and taught him. And so you have to ask the question, who was the last apostle to live? It was John. John died at a ripe old age, and he died in the late 90s. Okay, if he, and he's the last eyewitness. Okay, the last book of the Bible is what? Revelation. It was written right before he died. So we have to ask the question, if there's any type of document that comes after the 90s, can we accept it as Scripture? 
Probably not because there's no eyewitness. So the older the manuscript, the more reliable. If it's tied to an eyewitness, the more reliable. And so we've got the canon. The word canon means rule. The canon of Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, all the way through to Revelation. We've got the canon based upon the authority of the Scripture. And so one of the things I want us to start out with are just five characteristics of Scripture. We do this in every class um, that we talk about, a New Testament, Old Testament, because I think it's important just to let you guys know what inspiration means. Um, let me just read my definition. It's the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit, whereby the sacred writers were divinely supervised in their production of Scripture, being restrained from error and guided in the choice of words they use, consistently with their disparate personalities and stylistic peculiarities. Now let me explain what that means, okay? Turn to 2, Corinthians, 2, 2, 2 Timothy 3.16. Let's turn there real quick. 2 Timothy 3.16. And if you've got an ESV or you've got an NIV, ESV, I will tell you the reason why I started using the ESV. I used to use the NIV, and there's nothing wrong with the NIV. Um, there's some newer debates about some of the, the issues related to gender and stuff like that, but I, I grew up on the NIV. I mean, when I was little, it was the King James Version. But when I was doing a study back, it was probably in 2003, I was doing a study on 2 Timothy 3.16, okay? And let's just read 2 Timothy 3.16. What does it say there? All Scripture is inspired, or some of your translations may say breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Okay, not that you have to know Greek, but let me just write the word out here, what that, what that is. Um, it's the word theopanustos. I'm not expecting you to remember this. I'm just showing it to you. Theo, theos means what? God. Panustos means breathed. But the way it's used in the original language is it means God breathed it out. So the ESV says all scripture is breathed out by God. It's exhaled as opposed to, when we say inspired, it's not necessarily a bad terminology. But when I say something's inspired, if I were to say... Shakespeare was inspired to write Romeo and Juliet. Is, that, is there anything supernatural there? He was just kind of inspired to do that. Or let's say Michael Phelps was inspired to win the gold medal. He had an inner drive that inspired him to do that. There is an inner drive that inspires people to do great things, but that is not what we're talking about when we're talking about Scripture. It wasn't like Paul just sat down and said, Hey, I think I'm going to write something cool. I'm inspired to write Romans. No, God literally breathed out his word directly to Paul and gave him the exact words to say so that he wrote it down with the exact grammar, the exact punctuation, the exact conventions, everything, so that it would be free from error, but yet he would still have his style. Okay, so there's two authors when it comes to scripture. There's the big A and there's the little A. Who's the big A? The big author is God, the Holy Spirit. Okay. But the little a would be like Paul or Matthew or John. It's the individual writer of that particular book. Now, 
Paul's personality is a lot different than Matthew's. Matthew's writing style is a lot different than John. Peter was a fisherman. His writing style is a lot different. Luke, an educated doctor, probably has the highest writing style. He was Greek-trained. All of these men had different life experiences. They had different writing styles. And so their particular life experience and their writing style is going to come out in their book. And so it's going to, they're going to have their own personality and their own stylistic peculiarities. But because the Holy Spirit's the one that's telling them exactly what to write, what the final product's going to be is going to be an inspired or God-breathed text. Does that make sense? It's God-breathed out. Okay. Now, since it's God-breathed out... It has authority. Okay? It's actually God's word. All scripture possesses the supreme right to dictate and define what we are to believe and how we're to live. Most evangelical Christians don't necessarily have a problem with inspiration. But yeah, the Bible's God's word. I believe that. Where the rubber meets the road is on authority. This book has the supreme right to tell me what to believe and how to live. And I've said this a lot, and I'll say it again. In church life, we often, our vocabulary, what we talk about, often reveals some of our theology, okay? Vocabulary determines your theology. If I were to say, we should just apply the Bible to our lives, does that, that doesn't sound necessarily bad, does it? But what am I saying? We should apply the Bible to our lives. Who's the authority? Us. Us. In that, in that statement, we're the authority. So if, if the Bible applies to my life, I'll apply it. But I'll pick and choose which parts of it I want to apply. And so the Bible, let's apply the Bible to my life, meaning my life's the authority. If the Bible fits in with my life, cool. What we should say, we should change our, the, our, our terminology and say, I want to adjust my life under the authority of the Bible, where the Bible becomes a supreme authority, and then we adjust our lives <laughs> under its authority. Now, it still applies, right? We still, we still have application and we still live it out, but we're, we're, we're just, in our semantics, we are, we are making a distinction between who the authority is. Is it the Bible or is it us? And so when we say authority, we say the Bible has the supreme right to tell us not only what to believe but how to live, whether we like it or not. And how many of us like everything in the Bible? Okay. Inerrancy? Um, all of Scripture in the original manuscripts is free of falsehood, fraud, and deceit, and absolutely true without any mixture of error. Um, because it's God's Word, because it has authority, what we're saying is that everything in it is error-free and that it can be trustworthy. Um, it's inerrant. Um, another thing that we want to talk about is necessity. Um, we need the Bible. The Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, for maintaining your spiritual life, for knowing God's will. You can't be a Christian. I have to be real careful. You can't be a fulfilled, growing Christian without reading your Bible. Would you agree with that? If, if you don't know your Bible, then how do you know how to get saved, how to grow? Um, and then this is a big one, sufficiency. The Scriptures are not in need of any supplement. Their authority comes from their nature as God-breathed revelation. Their authority is not dependent upon man, church, or council. The Christian church looks to the Scriptures as the only infallible and sufficient rule of faith, which, since we're evangelical Protestants, we don't look to Rome or the Pope, to give us our authority. Since we are an autonomous local church, we don't look to an outside council to come tell us what to believe. We are an autonomous church that has the right under the authority of the gospel of Christ to determine what our theology is based upon the scriptures. Yes, Jeff. Okay, since 
since you brought that up, I've always had this question as a recovery Catholic. Okay. Uh oh, that's scary. But um, you know, they one of their claims is if you if you read the writings of the second century Christians, the people the apostles picked, it's pretty Catholic. I mean, how they approach the Eucharist mm -hmm. and church authority and tradition. I mean, Catholics have equal weight on the Bible and, and tradition. Mm -hmm. But um, how do you respond to something where you say, well, these are the people the apostles picked, and they're already getting things wrong. These are the people that put together the Bible, you know, in the third century. And it's always been kind of something that I've kind of like, that's kind of a good point on their end. So, I guess but I'm not... As an evangelical Christian, how do you respond to the second century, I mean, these are the people the apostles trained, and they're already missing the truth, you know, they're already messing up sacraments. Okay, putting okay, I understand. Okay, I see what you're saying. Well, we have to, number, number one, we have to understand that in, there's no perfect church, and there's no perfect apostle, so there's always going to be a mixture of error along with truth in any age. So, even if you're that close to the apostles' teaching, um, if you don't go back to the scriptures, and a lot of it comes to, if you know the history of the Roman Catholicism, we're kind of getting off track here, but if you go back to church history, the Bishop of Rome, um, let, me, let me give you a little bit of church history here. Are you guys okay if we take a diversion? Okay. Um, really, in the, in the early church, the, the, the seat... The seat of learning, the seat of authority was really in Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt was really where a lot of the church fathers and the, and the knowledge came from. Alexandria had a huge library. It was the place of learning, okay? But eventually, the Bishop of Rome. Now, um, we know that the church in Romans, at the time of Paul writing it, they didn't have a Bishop of Rome. But eventually what happened is in Rome, there was a lead pastor over the church in Rome that the people gave too much power to as the one bishop. And as the Roman Empire began to grow and Alexandria lost its influence, everyone began to look at the bishop of Rome. This was before the papacy, before there was a pope, before there was any official Roman Catholic church. So Rome kind of became the center of attention to where everybody said, okay, what is Rome going to say? What does the Bishop of Rome say about this? And so he became this authority whether he wanted to or not, and he was a fallible man. And so what ended up happening was over time, especially with Constantine in the Edict of Milan, which I think was like in around 3, don't quote me on the date, I think it was like 315 A.D. In the Edict of Milan, he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, and then that centralized a lot of the power there in Rome um, and then, you know, the Catholic Church kind of birthed out of that. So I would say, I don't know really how to answer your question, but to say that I think just because you handpick someone to lead doesn't mean they're without faults. And I think that the Roman Catholicism came as a product of people putting too much emphasis in one man in one town in the Roman Church, and eventually that's where the Pope kind of came from. I don't know if that answers your question, no, Jeff, or if that's a... I mean, okay. I've always considered, well, it must have just been Rob 
Sure. Sure. And when you go back, and here's the issue, and I don't want to like have a big like let's let's have a Catholic bash down. Let's not do that. But but anytime, <laughs> sorry, anytime that you, anytime that I'm going to write a word up here, and anytime you move away from this word, it's, it comes from the Protestant Reformation. It's one of the solas. If you move away from sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Anytime you move away from Scripture alone, these alones over here are what made it important. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to God's glory alone. They're the five solas um, of the Protestant Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church believed in grace, but it wasn't grace alone. It was grace plus. They believed in faith, but it wasn't faith alone. It was faith plus the sacraments. They believed in Jesus, but they didn't believe in Jesus alone. They believed that the Roman Catholic Church, you know, and Mary and all the other things. Um, they didn't believe, they believed in Scripture, but it wasn't Scripture alone. It was Scripture plus tradition. Now, the Roman Catholic Church says Scripture plus tradition. But we as Protestants can be just as guilty of Scripture plus whatever, and we put it on an equal authority with Scripture, and then we get into troubled waters. So anytime you move away from Scripture alone being the sole authority, the sufficient, the only rule of faith, you, you get into trouble. Um, so let me give you a practical example. If for some reason I become a heretic and I start spouting heresy from the pulpit and I start saying that it's not Scripture but it's Scripture plus the Sean Cole version of the Bible or it's the Book of Mormon, you have every right as, an, as a Christian to throw me out and to say you're, and rebuke me. Because it's always Scripture alone, no other authority. Now, we look back to church history for help. We look to commentaries for help. We look at famous theologians for help. Nobody's perfect. You read, you know, 10 theologians and they all have holes in them. But ultimately, um, God has given us the gift of teachers throughout the ages to help us understand deep truths. So I'm not throwing out tradition. I'm just saying when you elevate tradition at the same level as Scripture, um, then you have a slippery slope because what happens when this begins to change? And what happens when you have people in power that want to set an agenda? So your tradition can always change by who's in power. So power dictates. If you go back and read the, the history of the Roman Catholic Church, power dictates how things happen, not Scripture. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. A little church history in there. All right. Let's talk about genre. genre. Okay, um, when I talk about genre, <laughs> the best way, those of you that are, that are literary people, um, it's a literary category that denotes the style, type, form, and general content of a piece of literature. Okay, now we're feeling so better about it. Let me, give you a, let me give you a better definition of genre. Okay, how many of you guys remember the old blockbuster video? You, mean you actually walked into a blockbuster and you went down the aisle like, oh, I'm in the romance section, or oh, I'm in the horror section. Now it's Netflix, and you go on there and you're like, okay, they got the new releases or Redbox. Okay, genre is a type of literature. So um, is a Western going to be the same as a, as a romance? And here's the weird thing about like Netflix now. They've got it like so characterized. Western African love story with a strong female lead. You know, it's like... <laughs> If you are something you didn't know. <laughs> and then, like, you like it, and it links you to all movies with Harrison Ford as a, you know, whatever. So anyway, this, the New Testament has a genre, different genres in the New Testament. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Do you read the comics the same way you read the editorial page? 
do you read the Bible? Oh, maybe you do. <laughs> that's probably a bad, yeah, that's probably a bad. After what's happened this week, it's probably a bad thing. Um, do you read the box score, like the Broncos box score, the same way you read like a, um, an obituary? You read things in the newspaper based upon genre, and you read them differently, okay? So let's talk about the four genres in the New Testament. Um, first of all, you have Gospels, okay, with an S. Not the Gospel, but the Gospels. And we've got to ask a question. Are these simply just biographies on Jesus? Are these biographies on Jesus? No. They're theological documents. Now, let me show you a very interesting passage of Scripture. Turn to the very last of John, okay? Tonight, we, if, we, if we have time, we may jump into Mark's gospel, but we're doing a lot of introductory stuff. Go to the, to, to the end of John, and um, John 21, 25, the very last verse of the very last gospel, John. And it's a very fascinating little scripture here that tells us something about selectivity, Okay? So John 21, 25 says this. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. Okay. So do the gospel writers include everything that Jesus ever did? No. They're selective in what they chose. Do they focus on his teenage years? There's one gospel that talks about when he's 12. But what happened between 12 and 30? The gospel writers don't include that. So they're not biographies like you'd sit down. If they were a biography, what does John say? You'd have tons of books. So there's selectivity based under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit where each writer was selective in what they wanted to write. And this becomes very important because as we talk about something here in a, in a little while, it's going to become very clear. The question you've got to start asking as you do New Testament studies is why is... Why does one writer include one thing and another writer include another thing in the Gospels? Why did they select that particular parable and why did the other one not leave it out? Is it because they didn't, you know, they, they were confused? What's the purpose? There's always a theological purpose behind why certain things were included and certain things weren't. Okay, so they're not just biographies. So the first genre is Gospels, and they're, they're probably the most exciting reading in the New Testament because they're stories. They're narratives. They're, they're the story of Jesus' life. They're action. They're him doing things. It's the, it's the narrative stories, the gospels. Okay, the second genre are the letters or the epistles. Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, all, all of Paul's letters, James, 1 and 2 Peter, Jude, the letters. We just spent a year on the one genre, the history, Acts. It's the, it's the only history. It's not a gospel. It's not about the life of Jesus. It's not a letter. It's a history of the early church. And then finally, the last genre, which we'll have fun when we get to that, is prophecy, revelation, a prophetic, apocalyptic genre. So you're going to read prophecy different than you're going to read the Gospels. You're going to read Paul's letters differently than you're going to read Acts. And so you need to know some genre, you need to know some literary conventions that were typical in that culture to help you read and understand, Okay. One of the biggest areas of confusion, at least for me, and hopefully for you too, so I'm not all by myself, is interpreting parables. How many of you guys get confused when it comes to parables? What in the world is Jesus saying? Okay, so I'm going to help you, help you help me, understand how to interpret parables. Okay, so 
what I'm going to encourage you to do is this week, um, go read the Gospel of Mark if you can. It's the shortest, and come back next week. If you don't have it all read, that's fine. Um, but Mark is, is, is a shorter one. I'm going to argue that Mark was written before Matthew, but there's some scholarly debate about that. Um, but I want to give you these principles for interpreting parables before you go read. So let's talk about what's a parable. Well, it can mean a riddle, a proverb, an axiom, a story. Um, let, me, let, me, let, me just, let me give you an example. I go to Aiden and I say, Aiden, you shouldn't steal. Am I right? Yes, I'm giving him command, right? But what would be more effective, telling him a story about a kid that went and stole something and got in trouble and got his hand chopped off or, so, I don't know, some, some like real scary story that had a point. Telling him the story is going to get the point across more than just saying, don't go steal. Now, is don't go steal true? Yes, but sometimes telling a story to illustrate the truth packs more of a punch, and, and that's kind of what a parable does. Now, there's three types of parables, Okay. There's what we call the true or example, okay? Whether it's a true story or whether it's a real person, this would be like the, the, par- the prodigal son. It's about a father that had two sons, the good Samaritan. Now, whether that was a true story that actually happened, we don't know, but Jesus tells it as if it is a, a true or an example story. It's usually with concrete people, okay, like concrete characters, a prodigal son a good Samaritan, okay? The next is what we call a similitude. That's a big word. What does it sound like? Okay, so what you want to look for is you want to look for the big key words. The kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. So Jesus is going to compare the kingdom of heaven. He's going to tell a story. And so when you get to the end of the story, this is supposed to tell you what the kingdom of heaven is like. So it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's like a, it's comparing two things with the, usually the word like in them. The last one is what we call a metaphor. It's a little bit different than a similitude. This could be like, um, it doesn't use the word like, and it doesn't have a concrete person. Um, it could be like, um, like the wedding banquet or some type of parable that is an extended metaphor, but it's not comparing the kingdom of God to something, and it's not a concrete person, but it's like generic characters. Does that make sense? And sometimes these overlap, okay? So what we're going to do, <laughs> we're going to give you guys a, and in my class, oh, let, let's, let's talk about why did Jesus speak in parables? Why did he do it? Well, here's the question. Here's what I say about parables. You can never remain neutral to a parable. It's either meant for you to get mad. It's meant for you to be rebuked. (laughs) It's meant for you to scratch your head. It's meant for you to think. But you can never walk away and go, oh, that's cool, Jesus. (laughs) A parable is always supposed to drive home a response. It's supposed to drive home a response. It's either going to tick off a Pharisee and get them really mad, or if you're a true believer, it's going to prick you to the heart and you're going to understand what he's saying. So parables are told to separate the wheat from the chaff. And oftentimes parables are told in the presence of Pharisees about the Pharisees to bring judgment on the Pharisees so they can hear it and the people that are hearing it receive it and the, and the Pharisees don't. Does that, does that make sense? So it's always to bring about a response or a reaction. You can't be neutral. Okay, here's the guideline. A parable tends to teach one main point. Now there may be some sub-points, but and we don't want to allegorize, okay, like... 
Augustine was famous for allegorizing the, the Good Samaritan. You know, the donkey represented the Holy Spirit because he carried, you know, taking things a little bit too far. Ultimately, when you get down to the end of a parable, you've got to ask the question, okay, what is the one main point Jesus is trying to drive home? Okay, there's usually one singular thought or point. Four questions to ask when you're looking at parables. Number one, who are the, two, who are the main characters? Sometimes there are secondary characters that walk in and don't have, they have a bit part. Who, who's really the main characters? Number two, what comes at the end is usually the most important because that's usually where the punchline comes in. Who or what gets the most space? And what I mean by space is just literal space on your page. You know, like do they get a lot of space? In di- and then also what was found in direct conversation? What's found in direct conversation? Okay. And then this is where it kind of gets down to, once you figure that, then you got to say, okay, what was the point that Jesus was making? Then you got to ask a second question. What was the point that the gospel writer was making? And we'll talk a little bit about more of that next week. We may get to it this week. And then how does the parable apply to my life today? I kind of put that up there to make you, you know, what's the problem we often want to do, though, when it comes to parables? We want to jump straight to, in a lot of Bible study, we want to jump straight to, what, how does this apply to me, and what do we skip? A very important step. What does it mean, whether you're alive or dead? It means something, whether you're, I mean, even if you're not alive. It doesn't, I mean, it, we often are so self-centered as Americans, we want to go straight to application, and we skip meaning. But you, until you get the right, you've got to get the meaning first, and once you get the meaning, then it's going to have different applications based upon your life situation. But if you jump straight to application, you may not get the meaning right, and then you're going to be really messed up. Does that make sense? So we've got to go to what does it mean. So if you're in a small group Bible study and growth groups start this week, and, and, and one of your teachers, hopefully they won't do this, but you're in a big circle, and they say, what does this mean to you? You have my permission to slap them. No, I'm just joking. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I'm just, just joking. <clears throat> it doesn't matter what it means to you. What's a better way to ask it? What does the text say? Okay, first, what does the text say? What, is, what did Paul, not what does this mean to me, it's what did Paul say? What does it mean? Okay, here's what it means. Okay, now we've, we know what it means because it has, a, it has an absolute truth meaning. Okay, then how do we... How, do, how does those applications work out in our personal lives? Does that, does that make sense? Okay. I'm not getting away from application. We, can, we can't get away from application, but we've got to make sure we don't bypass the step of meaning. And sometimes in parables we can do that just because they're kind of confusing. Um, so what we want to do before we get to Hellenism, let's, let's look at a parable, a hard parable. And usually in my class I make the students do this in groups, but I'm not going to make you do that tonight. We're going to go through it together. I couldn't make you do it in groups, but it would be very uncomfortable. No, it might be kind of fun. <clears throat> what was that? You're too. Yeah, and most adults don't want to do groups. Turn to Matthew 20. Matthew 20, we're going to look at a parable. And first of all, we're going to use some of these rules for interpretation. You're going to kind of tell me what, what type of parable it is, who are the main characters, and so. Um, this is one of those ones that it's hard to figure out exactly what Jesus means. 
And um, yeah, it, it's it'll be interesting to see how we do. Okay, so Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like, so what is it? It's a similitude. So the kingdom of heaven is like, so first of all, let's just stop. This is what we call a kingdom parable. In Matthew, Matthew has a lot of kingdom parables where he'll say the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like. So we've got to ask the question, what is the kingdom of God? It comes from two words, king and dumb. Switch is short for domain, a king domain. So a kingdom means you got a king and you got a domain. So the kingdom of God means that Jesus is the king of his domain. And so a kingdom parable is going to describe how God operates as king in his domain over his people. So it's how does God operate as king? So we got to start thinking kingly language here. When you think of a king, what do you think about? Sovereignty, power, authority, rule. Okay? So are kingdom parables going to break convention in what we normally think about when it comes to fairness or when it comes to God? I mean, if the king's going to do something, is the king going to do it? Yes. Okay. So here we go. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius, okay, so let's just stop. It's a day's wage. So let's talk. What's a, what's a, you guys help me. I'm not, a, I'm not a day wage laborer. But what's a day wage laborer here in northeastern Colorado? $15? Let's just let's make the math easy. Can we say 10 bucks an hour? That's low. Okay, we'll see. I don't know if that's low or high. Ten bucks an hour. Okay, so ten bucks an hour, and it's very early in the morning, so he probably went out there about six. Okay, so if you work six to sundown in the labor, let's say you work from six to six, it'd be twelve hours. So okay, he goes out there and says, okay, I'll pay you ten bucks a day. We'll probably work twelve hours. We agree on it. You know, at the end of the day, you'll get paid one hundred and twenty bucks. That's your, that's your day wage. Okay? So the master goes out and he finds these guys and he says, okay, early in the morning, I'm going to pay you guys a day's wage to go out and work. So he sends them out into his vineyard. Okay, number th verse 3. And going out about the third hour, okay, that's, that's 9 o'clock in the morning, he saw others standing idle at the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. Okay, so the 9 o'clock guys, what's the agreement? Is there a dollar figure? Whatever is right. Okay, whatever's right or fair. Okay, these guys, let's, let's call these the 6 o'clock. We're not really sure. Just this early in the morning. But then we know these guys are at 9 o'clock. So the agreement was $10 an hour. The agreement whatever's fair. Okay, but these guys have already worked three hours longer than these guys. Okay, so let's keep our, keep our math in going here, okay? All right, so here we go. Verse 5. So they went... Going out again about the sixth hour. Okay, so what's this? Noon. Okay, going out about the sixth hour. And the ninth hour, three o'clock. So it's getting kind of late in the afternoon, right? He did the same. So what's the same? Right and right. Okay. And about the eleventh hour, so what's that? 
About 5 o'clock, so what, about an hour before quitting time, okay? About the 11th hour, he went and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. Now, was there ever a price agreed upon those guys? No. Okay, so they work about probably, let's say quitting time. Let's extend it an hour and just say, you know, 6.30, 7-ish. These guys got at least a good, a good hour, hour and a half in. Okay, we really don't know. Okay, it just says, verse 8, And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the... Now, what would happen if he paid these guys first? They'd take their money and leave and not see what the master's about to do. So he pays these guys first, and so here's what happens. Here's what goes on. Those hired about the 11th hour, each of them received what? They received 120 bucks, and they only worked an hour. Ooh, that doesn't sound fair. That sounds like a government handout. That doesn't sound fair. I only work an hour, and you're going to give me 120 bucks? Hey, I like this job. Okay. Now, look at verse 10. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive what? They're thinking, man, the master's generous. He gave these guys who worked an hour, 120 bucks. Man, we've worked 16 hours. You know, we've worked 12 hours. We're probably going to at least get, you know, 200 or 300 bucks. What happens? They get paid the same. And what's their immediate reaction? They grumbled at the master of the house. Wow, 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 wow. You gave these guys the same, you know, we've, we've worked out here, we've busted our buns for 12 hours, and you're giving us the same blah, blah, blah. And then verse 12, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us. Ooh, you've made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to them, this is the master of the house, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? So what's he saying? Am I, treating you am I treating you unfair? No. What was the agreement? A denarius. You got what we agreed upon. So I am in no way as the master being unjust. I'm not being unfair. I'm giving you what you agreed upon. Okay? Verse 14. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Now remember, what comes at the end is the most important. So what is the master going to say? Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity so the last will be first and the first will be last? Okay, what's the master saying? I'm the master. I have the right to show mercy and grace on whoever I want to show mercy and grace. You can't, you can't force me to do it. I'm not under your obligation. I'm not treating you unfairly. But if I want to treat these people the same as I treat you, that's my right because this is a, God, this is a parable about the kingdom. And the master can do what he wants with what is his. And so, number one, there, there's, there's a few main points here. I think the one point is, is the master can do whatever he wants. But number two, he asks a second question. Do you begrudge my generosity? Are you upset that I'm generous? 
because you look down on these people. You think these people don't deserve anything. Why in the world would you choose to give them generosity? And so sometimes, who's listening to this? Pharisees who are thinking in their head, there's those Gentile scum, there's those ungodly, there's those people out there that are outsiders of the tax collectors, the sinners. Those people don't deserve mercy. Those people don't deserve grace. You've made those people equal with us. We deserve to have the right kind of treatment. And God comes along and says, number one, it's my grace. I can dispense it how I want. And number two, if I choose to, to save the most wicked of sinners, what right do you to have to get angry? Because I have the right to show mercy on who I want to show mercy on. So don't get mad that I'm going to go show mercy. The first will be last, and the last will be first. Okay. Now, context, context, context. What's happening right before this? And what's happening right after this? Right before this is the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, you know, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know, have you obeyed the Ten Commandments? I've done all of them since my youth. I'm breaking all of them right there by lying to you, Jesus, but I'm, I've done all these since I was a kid. Jesus says, go sell all that you have, and he went away sad because he had great possessions. And then, and then the disciples are like flabbergasted. Who can be saved? If this guy can't be saved, this guy is righteous, this guy's got his act together, this guy's obeyed all the Ten Commandments, this guy, if you look at this guy, he's the poster child for a religious person in Israel, and you're saying, Jesus, he can't be saved? And then look at what they say there in verse 25. Go back to verse 25 of verse 19, or chapter 19. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Okay, so the story before this is the rich young ruler. What's the story after this? The mother's request from James and John to have their son sit at the right. So in the middle of these two stories, you have a parallel about who's first and who's last. In the disciples' eyes, man, this rich young ruler, he's first. And Jesus says, no, really? He thinks he's first, but he's going to be last. And those that are last are going to be first. Second story, James and John want to be first in the kingdom. They want to sit at the right and the left. And Jesus says, no, the Son of Man came to serve and give his life as a ransom of many. You've got to serve. And so this is a parable stuck in between there to show that the ways of the kingdom are different than the way we would think. The ways of the kingdom are different because you have a king of the kingdom that has a right to do with what he wants to do with his grace. And so um, we shouldn't be upset. For, for, for one thing, should we ever be upset that God shows mercy to somebody? Okay. Because God showed mercy to us. <laughs> did we deserve that mercy? No, we did not deserve that mercy, and God chose to show it. And so for God to choose to show it to someone that we think doesn't deserve it is the height of arrogance because what we're saying is that somehow I'm better than that person and God owes me. And anytime you say God owes me, you're in dangerous territory. Because if you say God owes me, then the next sentence should be, God owes me hell. <laughs> but he chooses to give me grace because he's the king of the kingdom and I have the right to do with my grace what I want to do. Do you begrudge my generosity? So the main point of this is be thankful that God saves sinners and you are one of them. That he's chosen to save. Okay? That's just an example of interpreting a parable. Now, as you go and look at Matthew chapter 13, he starts the basis for all the parables is the parable of the soils. We, we'll get to that when we get to Matthew, but the parable of the soils, 
really is the basis for all parables. Okay, let's talk about some cultural issues. Hellenism. Hellenism is the culture and philosophy and language and religion of the Greek-speaking people. Greco-Roman Hellenism, um, it's the people from the time of Alexander the Great to the New Testament. So Palestine is an island unto itself in the middle of this Greek culture. What do you guys know about Greek culture? Zeus, the Parthenon, the temple, Socrates, the philosophy, the Greek gods and goddesses, all of these different types of, of, of world religions coming together. Um, and, and so that's the culture that, and we saw it a lot in Acts when Paul goes into these Greco-Greek-speaking cultures are a lot different than when he was like in Jerusalem, but it's the culture of the world of the New Testament. Now, it's interesting because the chief means of propagating, this is, this is interesting, the chief means of propagating Greek culture was through cities. Now, let me just ask you a question. In the grand scheme of things, what's more important to culture, commerce, and industry? Pete's or Denver? <laughs> Depends on how you look at it. If you live at Pete's, maybe it's the thriving metropolis of the world. What's more? I'm not saying Pete's is less than Denver, but in the world's eyes, the cities is where what? Things happen. You've got culture, you've got industry, you've got art. And so Greek, the Greek culture was based upon cities. Rome, Corinth, Athens, Thessalonica, Philippi, all the places that Paul goes to on his missionary journeys. And so the culture goes through cities. So just a side note, we spent a year in Acts. What do you think Paul's strategic mode of operation was when he went into a new geographic area? Is he going to go to the hill country or is he going to go to the... He's going to go to the cities because that's the strategic place. Also, language. This was the first time in the history of the world where most of the known world had one language, Koine Greek. What was the New Testament written in? Koine Greek. So in God's providence and sovereignty, the world was all speaking the same language when God decided to write the New Testament and send Jesus during this time which helped the spread of the gospel when you can have a singular language. Um, we kind of understand that here in America, but go to Europe where you learn like four or five different languages and you have to cross like, like the distance between us and Kansas. In Europe, you'd cross like three or four different languages <laughs> just to get there. But here we all, know, we all speak one, so it's not a big deal. But for like Europe and um, the Palestine, the Middle East, where they spoke all these different languages in the, in the Greco-Roman world, Alexander the Great, in his conquest to, to conquer the world, the one positive thing he did under God's providence was he united everybody under a common language so that when the Bible was written in Greek, it was the one language where it could spread the fastest when Christianity started. So that was kind of a cool thing. Now, also, another negative thing was Hellenism was very syncretistic. Now, I'm going to teach you guys a word. Does anybody know what the word syncretism is or syncretistic? It happens at the same time. It's close. I'm going to teach you guys a prefix. You guys know what a prefix is? S-Y-N. Not S-I-N, but sin. And you know what this pre prefix is. Anybody heard of synergy? 
synthetic synagogue. We'll talk about that in a moment. What do you think sin means? Versus mono. Mono means one. The Greek prefix sin before anything means many. So synergy means ergon is the Greek word. Like our word energy comes from the Greek word ergon. So when you hear synergy, it means many working together for a common goal. Synthetic, many things coming together to create a fabric. Synagogue, many to gathering together for church. So syncretistic means many religions coming together. Kind of your buffet style. I don't use buffet anymore because nobody knows what we're talking about. Anybody go to, I mean, there's Golden Corral where you still kind of go to a cafe. I call it iPod religion, okay? What do you do on an iPod? Like when you go to iTunes, you don't have to buy the album anymore. You can go to this artist, 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 this artist, and you can create your playlist and you can customize exactly what you want. That's syncretism when it comes to religion. I can go to all these different religions and pull and choose what I want, bring them together, and I've got my religion. That's what was going on in the Greek-speaking world. If I like Zeus, I'll pull in some Zeus. I'll pull in some Persian mythology. Oh, Jesus sounds good. I'll pull him in. Oh, Moses, he was kind of a cool guy. I'll pull all these in and I'll create my own little religion. And that was acceptable in Greek culture because it was a syncretistic, all paths lead to God. Sounds very similar to the culture that we live in today. So Hellenism, cities were important. The Greek language is important, and the religion of, of, of Greek mythology and all these different religions coming together. So what problems does that pose, especially in the New Testament? When Jesus comes along and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but through me, does he shatter syncretism? Because what's he saying? It's only me. <laughs> now, it's interesting because in this culture, guess what the early Christians were called? The early Christians were called atheists. Why were they called atheists? Because they only believed in one God. Culturally, that was wrong. You needed to believe in all these different gods to create your own religion. You were not a good Greek religious person if you only had one God, so you're an atheist. Isn't that bizarre to think of Christians being called atheists in the early? But it was because they believed in only one God. Now, here's some other things that happened in that culture. Emperor worship. Okay, Caesar, the different emperors. Now, when we think of emperor worship, we often think of, you know, some guy sitting on a throne thinking that he's God and everybody worshiping him. That was not necessarily what it was. It was more political. Now, I'm going to bring another Star Wars. I have to do it every semester, bring a Star Wars thing. In. Emperor Palpatine, the emperor of the Galactic Empire, they didn't worship him, but he used his power to what? Unite all of the galactic nations and all the galactic planets into one empire so that if you spoke out against the emperor, he could come and crush you. So emperor worship was not so much to, to worship the emperor as a god. It was to instill fear in the people. If they spoke out against the emperor, they would be crushed. And so it was a way to say, everybody's uniting under this one guy. We're going to put him on the coin. He's going to be our top dog. And if you say anything against him, you're in trouble. Okay. Now, some of these emperors really wanted to be worshipped, but most of them knew that they weren't gods. They just knew politically this was the best way to keep all, all of these Roman-occupied lands in, in check is basically what, what he was saying. Um, and so if you were a Christian during that time, especially in these pagan cities, once a year you would have to go to the pagan temple. There would be the incense on the altar. You'd have to go 
take a pinch of incense, go up to the altar, bow down, and pay homage to my Lord and my God, the emperor. Would that be a problem for you as a Christian? To go give allegiance to Caesar and call him my Lord and my God. Now, it may not seem like, okay, I'm not, you know, what's the big deal? Just pinching incense and going in there. It was a huge deal in that culture because if you did did not do that, you'd be ridiculed, you'd be persecuted, um, you, you may lose your job. And so a lot of Christians compromised and said, you know what, I'll just go up and fake it and not really give allegiance to, to, to Caesar, but I'll just kind of go through the motions and, and say it but not really mean it. What did Jesus say? If you deny me before men, you know, so, so it was a big deal, emperor worship. Now, there were some emperors that demanded it while they were still alive. Caligula... He wanted his horse deified as well as himself. Nero and Domitian, those three, while they were still alive, were kind of crazy, and they wanted to be called our Lord and God. Now, because of their poor rulership, these three were the only ones who didn't receive divinity by the vote of the Senate upon death. Instead, they received memoria damnata, which means their memories damned. They die in, they die in infamy. They are not deified. We're not going to put them on coins or write anything good about them. Now, Gnosticism is another syncretistic worldview that really crept, crept into the early church, and it comes from a Greek word, gnosis. Gnosis basically means knowledge. Same thing as gnosko. Gnosko is the Greek word, gnosko is the Greek word to know. So it's a Greek word, it just means to know, but Gnosticism in its religious form was basically this idea that I've got this secret knowledge. If you come hang out with me and pay me some money and sow a seed into my ministry, I may pray over your anointed prayer cloth and give you great blessings because I've got the secret. These other guys over here, they don't know what they're talking about, but I've got the secret. That was Gnosticism. Does that sound like televangelism today? I mean, it's been around forever. It's you've got some secret knowledge that nobody else has, and you're trying to peddle it so that people can come and get this secret knowledge. It's Gnosticism. And it would, it would, it would manifest itself in two different ways. You had the, like the monk-type people that said, you know, here's one thing about Gnosticism that you need to understand. Matter, matter or flesh is basically evil. So we're in, this prison, we're in this prison house of the cell. We've been given these bodies, and the body is bad. So if your body is bad, there's one of two ways you're going to deal with it. If my body's bad, I'm going to starve my body. I'm going to beat my body. I'm going to live like a monk and try to, try to control my passions by you know, bringing my body under submission. That's asceticism, going and living like a monk in a desert because you've got these passions and you've got these desires and my body's doing things I don't want to do, so let me just beat my body into submission because the body's bad. The other group says, well, the body doesn't really matter, so I can do whatever I want with my body, with whoever I want, however I want, because all that really matters is the soul. So I can go have sex with as many people as I want, go get drunk, it doesn't matter because my soul's all off in the ether chilling out with some, some philosopher. So I can do whatever I want with my body. So you have both of these issues related to the body. Now, think about Christianity for a moment. Were we created as souls in the garden? Only. God chose to create us body and soul. When we end up in our final place in the new heavens and the new earth, 
Will we simply just be souls or will we have, we will have new bodies? When Jesus came born of a virgin, he came in a body. When he died on the cross, he literally died in a body. When he rose again, he rose again in a body. So the flesh is very important for the Christian life. God created us to be both body and soul. And so if you've got this Gnosticism knocking up against Christianity, there's going to be some conflicts because if matter is evil, then how do you explain the resurrection and the incarnation and the virgin birth and, the, and all those things? That's why when Paul walked into Athens and talked about the resurrection, they laughed at him because they're like, what in the world are you talking about? Some guy rising from the dead. If Paul would have said, you know, Jesus' body went out into the ether and his soul was kind of hanging out there in the clouds and all these planets were colliding and, you know, he kind of went and chilled on his own planet, they'd be like, okay, that's cool. But for him to raise again with the body, it's like, what's the deal there? So Gnosticism is secret knowledge. Only I've got. You've got to come be a part of my group. And it deals with how you deal with the body. Now, how often does Paul and the other writers of the New Testament talk about the flesh? We're stuck with it, right? When you become a Christian, yeah, you're stuck with it. When you become a Christian, do you just automatically stop sinning? No, you still have remaining flesh. You still have the sin nature. You still have to deal with that. And so the Bible says, here's how you, you deal with it as a new creation in Christ. It's still going to be there, but, but, but there's, there's principles and there's teachings on how to do that. You don't just go do whatever you want because I love sinning. God loves forgiving it's a great relationship. I'm going to do whatever I want with my body because, by golly, I'm going to heaven, so I can do whatever I want. And it's not like, oh, my goodness, I've, my body's so bad. I, you know, I'm going to go live in a cave somewhere and you know, flagellate myself with, you know, and do all these weird stigmata-type things that you see Roman Catholics do where they like, you know, live as, as monks or whatever. It's, it's not that. Okay, synagogue. What do you think synagogue means? Something together, right? It's a gog together. What's a gog? <laughs> it means to gog. Come on, guys. No. Um, the word in Greek means to come together or assemble. Okay, so here's the, here's the synagogue. It's a Jewish church. Just think about it as a Jewish church. So when Jesus, when you start reading the Gospels, Jesus goes into the synagogue. He's going into a church. Now, let's do a little bit of history. The synagogue probably dates back to the exile. If you remember from last class in the Old Testament, the Israelites were kicked out of the promised land. They built the temple under Solomon. Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar came, ransacked the temple, burned it down. They were sent off into Babylonian captivity. For how long? 70 years. Now, for those 70 years, they could not have a temple. You're not going to go build a temple in Babylon. So what are you going to do? You're still a good Jew that wants to worship Jesus. I mean, at that time, God the Father. What do you do? Well, we've still got to worship. So we've got to assemble ourselves as a church in a foreign land and still meet as God's people. And so these synagogues popped up all over the place. Now, when they were allowed to come back and rebuild the temple, the synagogue still stayed. You know, originally, everybody came to Jerusalem, and it was the central place of worship. But by the time of Jesus, there was the temple, yes, where people made pilgrimages to for the big festivals. But the normal life, in, in, it was around the synagogue where you have rabbis that would teach. And so what would happen? What would have to constitute a synagogue? Um, I kind of just talked about that. Ten men in attendance constituted a service. So in Philippi, if you remember... Where did Paul always go when he went to a new town? He'd go to the synagogue. In Philippi, he didn't go to the synagogue. He went to the riverside. 
which probably means in Philippi they didn't have 10 Jewish men to constitute a synagogue. So you have to have 10 Jewish men to constitute a synagogue. Here's what would happen. You would read from the Old Testament scroll. So the rabbi would come and he'd stand and he'd read from the scroll in the closet. Everybody would like kiss the scroll and he'd pass the scroll around. They'd, they'd kiss it because it was God's word and they, they revered the text, the scroll. After it was read, he sat down in the seat of Moses. It was called the seat of Moses. If you go back and look at archaeological areas, you see that the seat, um, we stand and preach the pulpit. Back then they sat in the seat of Moses because Moses was there. It's, it's the law. Moses was the culmination of everything. And he would expound upon the law. He would expound upon the scriptures. He would give a message. And then for prayer, everyone stood and faced Jerusalem. And they would pray. And so when Jesus walks into a synagogue, what does he do? Well, let's look real quick. Let's turn to Luke chapter 4 and see what Jesus does when he walks into a synagogue in his hometown of all places. In Nazareth. It'd be like, well, let's just read it. Okay, let's look at Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Luke 4, 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So in their synagogues. So he went from town to town. What the custom was, was there was a main rabbi in your town that was like the kind of the pastor. But if there was a traveling rabbi from another city, it was all customary to give him, oh, you're from, you're, from, you're from so-and-so. Why don't you come in and take the seat of Moses today and teach our people? So usually rabbis were given an opportunity. And so Jesus was given these opportunities to come in and preach. He, he was a rabbi. They wanted him to teach. And so he came in. Let's see what he does. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, it's interesting. Jesus went to church. What does it say there? As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Just a side note, Jesus was in church every Sunday. So just, what, would, what, would, what would Jesus do? Anyway, I'm, I'm just, but it was Sabbath back then. So anyway, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read. Remember, they stand up to read the scroll. And the scroll, the prophet Isaiah, was given to him. Normally, they'd go over to a cabinet. They'd open the cabinet. They'd pull the scroll out. And it was like on a reading plan. So wherever they left off last Saturday, they'd pick up the next week. And it just so happens, nothing just so happens, that he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And then he starts to read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, if you look at a footnote in your Bible, you probably go down there and realize that's from Isaiah, what, 61. Okay, so, so, so Jesus is giving a reading on Isaiah 61. And at this point, everybody's thinking, oh, that's cool. You know, he's reading the Bible, you know, let's see what he has to say. And so he, here's what happens next, verse 20. He rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's me, folks. That'd be like me walking to my hometown, reading the Bible. and like, that's talking about me. That's me. What are you going to do about it? And they're like, hmm. So let's see what they do. Verse 22. All spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? 
And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Okay, at this point, everybody's happy with Jesus. He read a cool scripture, and old cute Jesus, he grew up with Joseph, and he was the little, you know, carpenter boy. Now he's reading the scripture, and it's neat to have the hometown kid come home. And, you know, they're not quite understanding what he's saying. But then he's going to drop a bomb here, and they're going to want to kill him. So let's see what bomb he drops here and why it's such a bomb. Remember where, where, where he is. And you have to remember some of your Old Testament history here. Okay, verse 25. But I, in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel... In the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. What's Jesus giving? Two examples of Gentiles in the Old Testament that a prophet was specifically sent to to do the work of God and he didn't go to Israel. So ultimately what Jesus is saying here is, when I'm coming to, 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 to proclaim the good news to the poor and to proclaim liberty to the captives, it's not just for us Jews. It's also for Gentiles. And I'm going to give you two Old Testament examples to prove that God loves the Gentiles. Now, at this point, they're a little, they go a little ballistic. Let's see what happens next. Verse 28, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with what? Wrath. Okay, that means they, were, they weren't just little. They were mad, stark raven mad. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. And I love verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. <laughs> it wasn't his time yet. I'd like to be there to see just, you know, did, he, did he just like disappear? Did he like sneak out? How did, how did Jesus get out of there? So you have these synagogues. And so Jesus will go to the synagogues and do weird things. He'll heal people on the Sabbath in a synagogue, unheard of. He will forgive sins in the synagogue. Only God has the power to forgive sins. Everything Jesus does in the synagogue is to point the Jews to the fact that you think this is your central place of worship? This is about me. Don't be so wrapped up in your little church life, Israelites. I have come to fulfill all righteousness, and now it's pointing to, to me. Not, not me, Sean, but you understand, G Jesus. Okay. Yeah, 15 minutes. They would also recite the Shema, which if you remember last, last time in Deuteronomy, um, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. Uh, they would recite that every week. That was kind of their John 3.16. Um, there was still the temple because in the last week of Jesus' life, he has these showdowns in the great Jerusalem temple. Remember when he goes and does the money changers? And he has these conversations in the temple. So he will go to the outlying areas and deal in the synagogues. But the last week of his life, right before he dies in Jerusalem, he will interact in the temple, which is very important because what was the temple still? It was still the central place of worship. It was originally built under Solomon. You remember that. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. They came back under Zechariah and Haggai in Zerubbabel, and they rebuilt the temple. And then um, Herod came back and added on to it in about 20 B.C. to eighty twenty. That's the temple that, that, that Jesus, the big, the big temple that Herod added onto it to make it huge. And then in A.D. 70 is a big date, huge date in world history. Anybody know what happened in A.D. 70? Destruction of the temple of Jerusalem. Um, that was when the temple was destroyed forever. Um, and so the temple still plays a role in the New Testament. 
and Jesus will come and deal with that. Now, there is a word called the Sanhedrin. Um, think of the Sanhedrin more as like a Supreme Court. We saw it a little bit in Acts, like when um, Stephen had to go before the Sanhedrin. Um, they would sit in, like in, a, in a semicircle above you and, and pronounce judgments. It, it's the Greek word son together, hedra, seat. The Jewish Supreme Court consisted of anywhere between 70 to 100, 120 members. This included the high priest, the top dog, members of the priestly scribes, lay teachers, elders, Pharisees, Sadducees. So all of the political Jewish leaders who had power came together in this large group, and they are the ones that pronounced judgments. Okay, they were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus, ultimately, I mean, leading it up to Pilate. Jewish tradition states it was conceived by Moses, who appointed 70 elders to assist him in the business of government. The view of the great Sanhedrin as an aristocratic judicial body that was presided over by a hereditary high priest is not seen until about 200 B.C. So it's, it's really political, rich, and religious, but not as much religious as more political and rich. Um, when Rome arrived, the Sanhedrin lost most of his influence, but Julius Caesar restored it to its status as Supreme Court of the Palestine. Herod the Great, however, never allowed it to have much authority, but it became powerful after his death and throughout the life of Jesus. Now, let's talk about different people. I, I don't think I'll need to spend a lot of time on this. We, we know who the Pharisees are, right? They're the, they're the religious fundamentalists, and they're, for the most part, they have good intentions. They want to do the right thing. They want to obey the Word, but Ten Commandments weren't good enough for them, so they expanded it out to about 600 to protect the Ten Commandments. And so by the time that the Pharisees were around, you had the 600 commandments, and, and they were very smart. They were very um, pious. They were very religious. They liked to separate themselves from the people. They would be what we call the religious fundamentalists of their day. The Sadducees, these were more political. They were more wealthy. They were a little bit more liberal. They were the liberals. Because remember, there was a discussion about the resurrection Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Pharisees believe the resurrection. So they'd have these intramural debates about theology, but when it came to stoning Paul or it came to crucifying Jesus, we'll put our theological differences aside and we'll come together to kill Jesus. That's basically what the Sadducees and the Pharisees came together to kill Jesus regardless of their... It'd be like Democrats and Republicans coming together to get rid of somebody and throw out all their policies and their politics because they really don't like this person. And we're going to put all of our theology, all of our beliefs aside and come together for one sole purpose, and that's to get rid of this really bad person that we see. And that's what they did with Jesus. Now, here's the big question that I want to leave us with as we, as we go into next week because we're probably... Where's, oh, there it is. Okay, you guys know what sin means, right? The synoptic issue. So what is sin? Not S-I-N, but S-Y-N. What does it mean? Many. Many. What does optic mean? Vision, eyes, views. So synoptic means to see the same thing through many different lenses. So let me give you an example. If there was a wreck outside right now and there was somebody in the balcony overlooking the parking lot and they saw it, 
There was somebody at the ball fields that saw it. There was somebody in the parking lot that saw it. There was somebody on the roof of Home Depot that saw it. And there was the person in the car that saw it. It's one event, right? But how many different perspectives are seeing the event? you got five different perspectives looking at the same event. And so when you have different things looking at the same event, they're going to tell it in different ways, right? But it's still the same event. Okay, I was a film and video major in college, and this is called montage. When you try to tell a story by montage, and the famous montage is the, the shower scene in Psycho. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but there, I think it's something like 100 different shots. But the knife never does go into her. But because of montage and all the different shots, you are made to build up the fact that she, you see the blood, but you, but you never... It's all these different things coming together to create a, a scene, okay? Now, one of the, the things is, is, is camera angles also. If you watch a movie, it would be really boring if the whole movie was just one camera angle. There's all these different camera angles, okay? So what's the synoptic issue? Here's the big question that you've got to ask, and maybe you've thought about this. Why are there four Gospels and not just one? Why isn't there just Matthew? Why is there Mark, Luke, and John? Why are there four? It's called the synoptic issue. So let's talk about the synoptic gospels. Have you ever heard of the synoptic gospels? It's maybe a new term for you. There are three synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered the synoptic gospels. And the reason why they're considered the synoptic gospels is because for the most part, they tell a very similar story, but through different camera angles. A lot of the same parables, a lot of the same miracles, a lot of the same stories, a lot of differences, but for the most part, they are very similar, especially Matthew and Mark. Now, John is not a synoptic gospel. John is more theological. John really focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. John is centered around seven. He likes the number seven, seven signs, seven miracles, seven I am statements. And so John's in a different category. So we've got to ask the question, what makes Matthew, Mark, and Luke different and yet similar? It's the synoptic issue. It's four different men telling the same story, or three different with the synoptic, telling the same story but through a different lens. So what's the lens through which they're telling it? I'll give you the Reader's Digest version, but we're going to unpack this as we go into the class. Matthew is written primarily to Jews to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's going to use a lot of Old Testament quotes to prove it. So there's going to be a lot of Old Testament quotes. It's a Jewish audience. It's people who are steeped in the Old Testament. They know their Old Testament. Matthew's going to focus more on Jesus as Messiah, the kingdom of God. Okay, Mark, he's focusing on Gentiles in Rome who are under persecution. So the themes that he's going to bring out are going to be reaching a different audience. Now, two different audiences, right? If you're a Jew in Jerusalem or or Palestine that's steeped in your Old Testament and you just have to be proved that Jesus is Messiah, your experience is a lot different than a Gentile in Rome, far removed from Jerusalem, undergoing persecution. 
Luke is written to Gentiles, but it covers, like, it's more universal. And Luke's going to focus more on women, the poor, and the outcasts. He's a doctor. His perspective is different. He's dealing with patients. So he thinks, sees things through a different lens. John is the hardest to figure out. And we'll get to this. John is speaking to what we would call Hellenistic Jews that are scattered. They're not Jews in Palestine. They're Jews by ethnicity, but their culture... Remember, what's Hellenism? Greek. They're Greek-speaking Jews who have more of a Greek culture, but they're still Jewish by ethnicity. And they're not in Jerusalem. They're scattered. And so, and then each of them is going to have a different theological perspective. And so the question is, really the answer is, in seminary, it was called the synoptic problem. I never liked it when they called it a problem because why is it a problem if God, God has four gospels? It's not a problem. So I changed the terminology. I call it the synoptic issue. Do you be aware of? There's a purpose why there's four. And so as we study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're going to talk about what was the intention of the author, what was the audience, what was the theology, why are these different, why are they similar, and ultimately the synoptic gospels say we're going to give you the same story but through three or three different lenses to help you see it. And think about the credibility issue. If there were just one gospel, verses 4, how does that lend to the credibility of the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus, if there's four. And they're all in concert. I'm not saying they're in conflict. They may be different perspectives, but they're not in conflict. They're different, but they're unified. It, en it enhances the validity of the life of Christ. Okay? With that, we'll probably stop tonight, and we'll get into the Gospel of Mark. Um, I teach this class in five weeks three and a half hours, but we'll go through December and we'll, we'll try to get slow, um, especially when we get to Romans and other places. We may have to slow down a little bit. But um, anyway, let's pray. Is there any questions at all? We've got like three minutes. No can of worms or deep theological questions I can't answer in three minutes. Or maybe I can. Any questions? Comments or? One thing I will say. I'm really excited about this Sunday because I'm starting a new sermon series, and a lot of it is what we talked about in this class. That one time when I did the diagram on the board, you remember the diagrams, the three? The what? No, not dogma, doctrine, and preferences. The, 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 how you, what your identity in Christ based upon the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm going to be teaching on this Sunday, starting this new sermon series. But I have created, and this is the first time I've ever done this, so I really encourage you guys to be a part of this. I created a 50-day spiritual devotional guide. So we'll hand those out on Sunday. You can also access them through our blog. They'll come up every day on our blog post, which is linked to our church app if you want to do it the digital way or you can do it the old-fashioned way. But anyway, for 50, and people are like, well, why is it 50? Well, number one, I don't like 40. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, here, here's, to me, number one, it really worked out with my sermon series, but no, that's, that's uh, 40 in the Bible is always equated with like a time of desert. <laughs> Jesus was in the desert for 40 days. They were in the wilderness. 50 is Pentecost. It's 50 days after 
um, Passover. So as the disciples were waiting and praying for God to do something big, it happened 50 days later. Now, I'm not expecting, obviously, not, not a second Pentecost, but what I'm, what I'm hoping is, and maybe God will do that, what I'm hoping is is that every day for 50 days, as we as a whole church family are immersing ourselves in the scriptures that go along with my sermons, that help us to understand these truths. And then what we're going to do is we're going to come back on the last Sunday night in October as a church family, and it's just going to be a time of testimony to share what God's been saying to us as a church family and how we've grown. Um, normally as a church, and I was asking the elders just the other day, you know, we've done this when we're getting ready to do a building campaign. So we get everybody all hyped up and fasting and praying so that we can give money to a building campaign. This has nothing to do with the building. It has nothing. This is just for us as a church to go on a spiritual journey to grow in Christ and experience growth. And so I'm excited to see what God's going to do. So I'm going to launch that on Sunday. Um, we'll have that ready to go. But I encourage you guys to be on this 50-day journey. Um, and, and every day, it'll take, probably take you about 10. If, you're, if you already have a quiet time, this is a supplement to what you're doing. If you aren't having a quiet time, it takes about probably about 10 to 15 minutes a day reading scriptures, having some thoughts, and then just, just praying about what God, God would do. And I'm just really excited to see if the whole body is, is, is hearing from the Lord and we meet back together what God's going to do. So I've ne- we've never done this, so I'm excited. So let's pray, and then I'll let you out of here. Father, thank you for your grace. Uh, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your providence that you um, ordained that we have the New Testament in the order that it's in, uh, the exact wording that you wanted it to be in, and that we get to see Jesus in action, and we get to understand all the different perspectives of the different writers, and we can understand the culture, and Lord, help us to understand parables, and there's just so many things in your New Testament that we, we long to understand, and so um, I just pray that you, you'd make us hungry, hungry for your word not just so that we can get information, but, Lord, so that it leads to obedience. Um, Lord, so many of us are, are, are so knowledgeable, but we're not obeying what we know. We don't need sometimes more information. We need transformation to be living out what it means to follow you. So, Lord, help us in that. Bring us back safely this Sunday, and we look forward to a great day of worship together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.